Welcome to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery, brought to you by spiritualteachers.org. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. Hello, and thanks for joining me for this episode of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I've got a quick announcement before we get started. November 1st through the 3rd is Tap Foundation's November event, and both Bob Sergal and Arnima Pundir, who have been guests on this podcast, will be there, along with Art Tickner. This event will feature breakout sessions in small groups with each teacher. And if you're used to events with 150 people in the room and only a handful of those get the opportunity to ask questions, this format will be a nice change of pace for you. Wherever you are, it's definitely an event worth attending. To find out more, visit tatfoundation.org and look for the November event banner. Now, my guest this episode is Maury Lee. Maury is one of those otherwise quiet souls who became obsessed with finding the truth. I hope you enjoy and find inspiration in his story. Well, first thing I wanted to do, Mari, is just thank you, obviously, for taking the time out of your day to spend some time on an interview. I'm glad to do it. A little little uh, new for me, because uh, like I said, I've been a hermit for for years and years and years. So, Yeah, understood. Well, I, uh, I'll start off with, uh, with what I'm sure will be an easy question to start this interview off with, and that is uh, on your blog, it says, uh, there's a description, I guess, it says, 69-year-old male expressing non-duality, realization by the grace of God. Uh, can, you, can you elaborate a little more on, on what you mean and why you chose that phrase, the grace of God? Well, basically it comes down to, you know, if you start doing the inquiry of, you know, who am I, uh, and, and you do it seriously, pretty soon you, you sort of drop the uh, who am I, and you start realizing that, that you're not even a, a who, so to speak, a, a, as a person, that you are this uh, principle, you know, Vedanta, you know, Tatswa. I mean that that you are that, and 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 you get to the point where you know you are that, but you can't say much else about it. And so, you know, I'm not somebody. I know some people say, "Oh, there's nobody here, and uh, there's no person left." Uh, when you realize, you know, what you really are, but. You know, I don't take that stance, but the personality that you always thought that you were uh, shifts into the background. It's uh, like the gestalt, the shift between foreground and background. You just, there's just a shift and all of a sudden it's like you're observing your, your person from another point, uh, a point of awareness that, that doesn't have any judgment or anything to say about it. it, it allows everything, but, but you're looking at yourself from there. So, uh, in fact, I was, uh, talked a lot with Charlie Hayes and the uh, race car driver that became a, a teacher. And, uh, 
you know, I'm talking to him. He says, well, you, you write really well. You should uh, start a blog. And I, he said, you should name it No More. So, <laughs> and and I, I tend to be someone that, that reacts uh, rather than goes out and promotes. So if somebody asks me a question, I'll talk. Or if somebody says, you know, you write well, start a blog. You know, here's a name for you. Uh, it's like I respond that way versus, you know, someone that's a missionary type and is going to go out and save the world. You know? mm-hmm. I, I, that's, that's not me. <laughs> so does that, mm-hmm. does that explain what I wrote there or do you think I covered it? Uh, well, I'm curious, uh, two things so i know your blog has been around for quite a while since 2007 so it was this uh the suggestion from charlie that was the the impetus to start it yeah and and my blog is not popular and basically non-duality isn't really popular i mean when you start pursuing it you find out there's a lot of people out there but in general it's not but i've had a number of people come talk to me like Jeffrey Martin. I don't know who, if you know who he is, but he's doing uh, brainwave scanning and all that with uh, mystics and people that, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he dropped by my house one day and interviewed me for a few hours, you know, for his program. And then, I mean, he interviewed lots of people and then selected a number of them. I, I, I mean, that that's all I've done is, you know, I mean, years ago I wrote a book, but I, I, I've never promoted that either. So, right. Mm-hmm. Like, like I said, I've been just a very quiet householder type that just pursued this and, and came to the end of my seeking. and It satisfied me. And so you mentioned a, I believe you used the word a, a switch. Um into a, a different perspective. Uh, at the same time, I, I noticed on your blog that you also uh, talk a fair bit about understanding versus belief. And I got the impression that you felt that understanding non-duality was, was important. But are you talking about... Um, an intellectual understanding as in terms of reading books and, and sort of grasping in that way? Or are you talking about more of an experiential understanding or both? You need both. You need both. Uh, from, from the time I was really, really little, I was really, really intuitive. I mean, really intuitive. And and I was raised by Baptist missionaries to a large extent in the Belgian Congo. But then my, my father also went and became the director of the Baptist churches in Belgium. And so I graduated from high school in Belgium. But um, so what I noticed in myself is that over time I would go through shifts. I would go through six months or a year where I was like, very anti-intellectual and would just pursue uh, the non-linear side 
of, of my existence or the feeling side or the intuitive side and would have incredible mystical experiences and kundalini stuff that was sometimes very ecstatic and very blissful. And, and uh, during those times, I would get like a download is the only way I would describe it. And it's a download that's beyond the words. But uh, when you get into that space, um, you would get the sense that you knew everything or you knew this tremendous amount of stuff that was absolutely full of meaning, just tremendous meaning and, and bliss and everything was okay and, and everything was in order. And, and sometimes I would stay for a few hours or a few weeks or a month and then that would drop. And then contrast that with I'm also extremely intellectual and, and I love abstract thinking. And so after those periods, then I would say, okay, that's an experience. What is the message? What, what do I need to understand now that that ecstasy or that whatever experience is over? And, and very often there would be almost like a depression afterwards because the intensity of the download would be, um, what do you call it? Um, uh, it would be very so meaningful that, that when it left and I'm back in my sort of regular ordinary mundane state you know uh, I, I would not I would not know how to uh, uh, deal with it other than try and understand it so then I would read but then I can also say that when I would be reading like a Franklin Merrill Wolf or Christian Murray, I would literally get a, um, uh, a mystical experiences from that. So I think it would be pretty hard for me to say that uh, one is over the other. But, but at the same time, at some point, I had to come to my mind, I would say, needed to have a grasp of what I had experienced, say, I, I, you know, I don't want to just say it's emotional, but whatever that, that other side is. So, so I mean, I, you can have an experience, but, you know, somehow you have to be able to communicate communicate it and in my mind would want to understand it and so I don't think it's enough to have an experience and as I think you're pointing out that just an intellectual understanding of oh yeah that's the case in other words uh, if you get it intellectually and you don't do anything with it I think that a lot of term now people use as embodiment it's like in other words, the realization has to be so profound that, that the way you live your life has changed. And, and, and if you just understand it intellectually and say, oh, yeah, that's interesting. It's like, oh, I understand the, the theory of, you know, light or EMC squared equals whatever. So, so you understand that if it doesn't 
you know, when, when it comes to realization, you, you have to embody that, embody it. And I think, uh, so you realize you are that, well, that's just the first step, you know, it's from then on, it's like, how well do you embody it? How, how well do you change your life or see things differently and, and, and act on that truth versus what the normal clutch and grab thing is. Did you have the experience of the intellectual part of yourself wanting to pick apart these mystical experiences and discount them or explain them away? No, no. They are, uh, what can I say? The, the first time I had a really incredible mystical experience afterwards my 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 feeling and my thinking was that there is absolutely no way that you could intellectually prove this or even even question it in other words they they come with so much authority that to even think of intellectually questioning it is ridiculous. The authority of them is like uh, what my daughter used to like me to rub her back when she went to sleep at night. And this was years ago because she's grown and she's got her own kids and everything. But but I would rub her back at night. But like I said, my search was intense. So I would have a cassette tape of say Krishna Murthy playing in the bedroom, and I would be listening to that and rubbing my daughter's back. <laughs> so I'm rubbing her back and I'm feeling all this love for my daughter and listening to Krishnamurti and then boom, I'm in this other space and I'm talking about ecstasy. I mean, it's just, it, it's just absolute pure bliss. And, and then suddenly uh, I can only conjecture, but it was like, my personal self or whatever sort of realized that, oh my God, you're not, you're not here. You know, it was like this other space. And I'm like, you, I, I'm not here. And then the next thought was, I can't stay here because I'm not here and I have two kids and I have to take care of them. And if I stayed here, I wouldn't do anything. I'd just be blissed out you know, gone forever. And so it started to fade. But as it faded, I got this, I don't hear a voice, but it's just a, you just get a knowledge or it's, it's, a, it's, you, you get the words, but they're not, they're not auditory for me. But the word was that you are totally surrounded by absolute beauty, and you always have been, and you always will be, whether you realize it or not. Where does shit like that come from? I mean, I was like, it was like a message that this ecstasy left, but the message was, you are surrounded by absolute beauty, always have been and always will be, whether you realize it or not. And 
there were other times when, like for a month or so, everything was so beautiful to me that I would watch TV and cry because of all the beautiful faces. I remember being in a, a fish store and looking at the fish, and I mean, everything was so beautiful. It was like, you know, just cry. But eventually that, that leaves, and then you have to deal with sort of a more ordinary life, but with this knowledge that there's something else behind all of this that's, you know, beyond, beyond. So when the, the period of time when those sorts of experiences were happening for you, did you were still actively searching though, right? Oh yes. It wasn't like you. Oh yes. So what kept you? What kept you moving or questioning or reading? If you're having these sorts of experiences, why didn't you just say, "Oh, well, that, you know, that's awesome. I, that's satisfying to me. I I can live with that, knowing that." Because, as you said, the intellectual part of me or whatever wanted to understand. Uh, it's there, there's there's just two sides of me that are very strong. That intuitive side was open enough to allow me to have all these experiences. But the intellectual side of me wanted to come to a satisfactory understanding, you know. And, and basically, uh, I always saw my life as being cursed. And, and the reason I thought it was cursed was because from the time I was really, really little, I had this intense drive to know the truth. And it's like, I, I would talk to other kids and other people, and I never met anybody that had that sense of urgency about there's some truth that's missing, and everybody's living their lives, and they don't know this truth. And while everybody else could, you know, go out to the bars and drink or play sports and all of that seemed to be enough for them, I always felt like I was cursed because I had to question everything because there was this sense that something was missing. There was a truth that absolutely needed to be known or none of this made sense or was worthwhile. And that, that just drove me and I didn't feel in charge of it. It was I never had a sense of me personally choosing to be on this quest ever. It was just, I was born and the quest was there. And it was, there was no getting around it. There was no pushing it in the background. It, it just, just was this intense thing about there's something that nobody sees, nobody knows about, nobody's paying attention to. But for some reason, I knew that it was missing and I needed to find it. And it wasn't, I, I, I never felt like a choice. Was never a choice. Did you ever turn away from that and try to hide from, from that quest? No, but but the quest was was very serious in the fact that uh, you know uh, I was raised by like I said by in Africa for a number of years uh, with basically religious fanatics, and uh, so I I I pretty much had to toe the line at least you know, 
present that I went along with the program to a certain extent. But when I got to college out in California in the late 60s, uh, in the drug culture out there, um, my, uh, I just lost it like that. I mean, it just, in, in one or two weeks, the whole thing just collapsed because I was looking for the truth and I couldn't believe it. And so for a number of years, I mean, I was just in just sheer 24-7 psychological pain trying to figure out what would re replace that, you know, what the real truth was. And then I went through a lot of years of being angry, and then I was an atheist for a number of years. But even during the time of being a complete atheist, that search was still there. It was just, if I had to be an atheist to get to the truth, if I had to be an agnostic, whatever, I, there was no, I couldn't stop it. I, I didn't quite follow you. So you, you came out to California, and what was it that 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 changed about you, or dropped away when you came to California? Well, just 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 trying to believe the the uh, the Western interpretation or the basic interpretation of Christianity that I was brought up with. I just didn't believe it. And, and as soon as I left home and went out to California and was away from all my relatives and anybody that would tell me how I should think or how I should feel and what I should believe, it just everything just collapsed. It's just gone. I say, okay, I gotta start from scratch. So starting from scratch as well, there's this body here and I, the, the God that I was taught to believe in didn't seem real to me. In, in any way whatsoever and so it was it was it was being in the at that time i really liked the existentialists because they talked about this oblivion and this loneliness and having no answers and being alienated and so basically that time i i would say i was you know just as pretty much an existentialist did you get involved uh like a like some people did using things like LSD to explore no, spiritual. No, 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 no. I had friends, you know, people, acquaintances that were into anything they could get. But the, the truth was I was so intense and questioned everything and, and was so, uh, on edge with my search that even the people like it would take LSD and stuff, they wouldn't give it to me. They were like, no, nah, we don't even want to be around you if you take that stuff. They were like, you're really already way too far out. I'm serious. They, 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 if they were going to go do it, they never they'd say, we don't want to be responsible for that. So you were, uh, you were attracted to the, existentialists um, I mean I'm trying I'm just trying to get a sense of what your search looked like in those years was it primarily reading or did you go to discussion groups or no no reading I, I mean I, I just I read everything I mean I, I plowed through you know the, the poetry of the of the the romantic poets and stuff. I, I read uh, just a lot of self-help books, you know, anything I could get on. So basically, I, 
first plowed through all the self-help books, and then really got into psychology and studied all the different kinds of psychology. And then I studied philosophy, you know, not formally, but, you know, all kinds of philosophy. And then eventually it came to the point, well, none of that has the answer. So the only thing left was spirituality. And so then I started reading. Here's what I noticed. I would go to the bookstore and I would find a book that was just a little bit off of wherever my current beliefs or understanding or whatever was, and I would buy it. And, and, and it was like Ramana talks about, you take a thorn to remove a thorn. So basically with thinking, it's like if I was in position A, I would buy a book that was, it would sort of accept that, but was a little, had a little different take or a little expansion. So I would read that book and I would drop the previous position and take on the new one. And, so, and I, 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 I could look at myself and see what I was doing. So at some point I said, I keep reading books that will destroy my current position. And then when I take up this new position, I'll get another book that will take that apart. So I saw there's this whole deconstruction going on. It's like I'm, I'm using deeper and deeper concepts to destroy where I've gone before. And, and at some point during that time, I picked up Krishnamurti. And, and I went home, and, and again, I had a wife and two kids. I had no idea who Krishnamurti was, never heard of him. But I bought this book called You Are the World. And I started reading it. And halfway through it, I was like, okay, I know I'm going to start crying because I felt this incredible forgiveness. So I went to the other side of the house and went in the bathroom and closed the door and sat on the floor and continued to read. And then I just started crying and crying and crying. I just felt this tremendous forgiveness. And I couldn't even tell why. But uh, Krishnamurti just, it just literally took my head apart. He just, just destroyed it. And, and then I read every, everything he wrote after that. I mean, I bought every book I could find, ordered books from India that weren't even in print in the U.S. and, and read them. And, and, and what I was always trying to do was I was saying, I like the space he's coming from. So when I was reading him, I was trying to feel my way into the space he had to be in to write what he wrote. It's like, what, what, where, where is he? What is the space he is in that he can write this? And, and he was really good because then after that, I would like go to work and I would look at people and I would say, okay, take the position that you have no idea what a person is and start from scratch. It's something that moves. It's something that talks. And so it's basically reconstructing from from not knowing anything, having no uh, objective idea of who a person was or what a thing was. And, and, and it was really Krishnamurti that, that sort of started all these mystical experiences. And about how old were you at that time? Uh, late 20s. Now, you've, you've described yourself as a hermit, yet um, 
you went to college, you got married, you had kids, you had a career, right? So it's not like you were in the woods. So, right. So let, let me correct that. What I meant was that I didn't socialize any more than I had to. In other words, every minute I had, like I would stay up all night reading. You know, I, I'd go to work, take care of my kids, and stay up you know, to one, two, three in the morning, or get up in the middle of the night and, and read Krishnamurti or Richard Rose or, you know, whoever I was finding helpful or, or would, would help clarify or give me another, you know, uh, experience that, that opened me up to those levels. So, you know, not a hermit in the woods, no. But a hermit... In the sense that I, I didn't, I didn't go to parties. I didn't join groups. I didn't, you know, I just had this pursuit. So, what did your wife think about this? Did she just think you were had an odd hobby, or? Well, uh, the, my wife at that time, you know, eventually, you know, she would be if we were, you know, going to go somewhere like that parent-teachers meeting or something like that, she came to the point where, you know, she would say, you know, don't talk about Nietzsche or Christian Murray. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because I, everything I was talking about and reading about was not, people would just think it was very odd, so. Right. It was an issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did she know uh, <clears throat> going into the relationship when you, you first met her? Like, did she know what you were really passionate about? Or did she share that at all? I think she was really a rebel at heart. Hmm. But she would, and, and so she could vicariously experience someone really being a rebel without having to do it herself and and, and, and i got to give her credit I, I think she really was but she just couldn't do it and she didn't have the that, that curse of the pursuit you know that, that just had to be done and uh, i mean we end up divorced because it, the relationship didn't seem honest to me Mm -hmm. But but I, this kind of pursuit I don't think is is healthy for uh, relationships because it's it's such a priority that uh, you know, people can feel uh, left out or ignored. Or... That's a that's a very interesting point to me because I I know that one thing that working with Richard Rose he he emphasize to us this that well he once said uh you can't carry your girlfriend on your back through the gates of heaven yeah 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 and uh yeah, yeah I, 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 I i well i was just gonna say i i get that yet at the same time that i think that's a very difficult message and a lot of people disagree with it because they feel like you should be able to 
uh, have a relationship and be successful in your work and because there should be balance to all these things and then if you get too far into the spiritual search it's like you're hiding from life you you get those sorts of accusations so i'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that i I would sort of agree with with what those people are saying if anything what i would like to to promote is is the the idea of the house how being a householder and being able to pursue this and, and getting to the end now I might say that it might take you a lot longer, and in my case, uh, it probably took me a lot longer because I didn't drop everything and like go to India to an ashram uh, or anything like that. I I I lived a pretty normal life, and and I could go to work and not talk about this to anybody. Uh, and, and and be married and have kids and you know do that do that but but literally every spare moment was reading and contemplating I, I was never a meditator I, meditation never did a thing for me but I would contemplate and I would contemplate just you know very very deeply and and it was a uh, it, it, it was very rewarding, and the other side of it is, is it kept me grounded. You know, going to work and having family kept me grounded, so that I, and that's one of the things that, that I disagreed with Rose on. I mean, I read as many of the, this is years ago, that I read, you know, the Albigon papers, how do you pronounce that? Albigen. Yeah, I, re- I read those. And pretty much read everything I could find that Rose wrote, and I wrote read some of the books that other students wrote. I think there's one or two of them. And uh, but I disagreed with Rose, where you had to drop everything and, and you know, not have a girlfriend or not be married or whatever. So uh, I, I I would fall on the side that you know I, you probably don't have a choice. If you're the type that has to drop everything and and be celibate and go off to India or you know go in the woods and live by yourself, I don't think I don't think people have a choice over that. If that's their the way they're structured, they're going to do that, you know. But you know, there's there's quite a few people that have been householders and come to realize that they are that. Either way, I mean, the, this this whole thing is infinite, so there's going to be infinite ways to realize the self, whether you remain a householder or you, you join an ashram or, you know, it happens all kinds of different ways. And that's one of the things I like about uh, TAT is that uh, from what I gather, people can come there and, and talk, and there's no, I, I don't see any really rigid, uh, like, belief system that, that you have to have discovered this, say, by reading Richard Rose, or 
by following this methodology. I think from what I've seen, there's you guys have people that talk that are, have come about this discovery in lots of different ways. And there's other organizations that know you have to have come to this via this method. It is unique in that way. There's a, yeah, there's a great variety of teachers available. Um, and at the same time, while that's a strength, I also think occasionally that that's a bit of a weakness because people do, if you, if you have a clear cut uh, path or a teacher or teaching and you say, well, this is the way that it's done, this is what you do, there's a certain attraction to that. I, I, absolutely. I, I, I agree. But then there's people like me that the, the ministers that I was around, they would get up in the pulpit and they would preach as if they knew, right? I know this is the way it is. And it wasn't believable to me. And, and so I, came, I, I didn't end up disrespecting all authority. But I came up with a, a real skepticism of, you know, some people in authority know what they're talking about, and a lot of them don't. And so I was, I, I was, a, 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 I didn't like a structure, organized religion of any kind, and I didn't join any because I always felt like. As soon as I got into a structure, you get into bureaucracy, and there's going to be some limits on what you can explore. Or there'll be somebody saying, no, that's not the way you do this. And I was all for freedom. And I was like, I don't care what the method is. I don't care, you know, what the structure is. If at any time I say, no, my road goes this way, I think it's over here. I wasn't going to abide by any structure whatsoever. I mean, it was just, it was very, uh, so it's like I would read anyone and everyone, and either it resonated and rang true or it didn't. But the only group I ever was in and stayed in for a long time was a, a Gestalt group that ran in Kansas City for years, and it was a very, very intense. I mean, it was dream work and, and just very, very intense. Uh, and, and Gestalt work is not analytical. It's very experiential. And so I, I worked on my dreams a lot and, and that will bring up, you've got a lot of repressed stuff. Doing dream work will get it out. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned primal therapy and gestalt therapy, both on your blog. And uh, Michael Kassari had actually briefly mentioned primal therapy when I interviewed him. So that was, uh, obviously, since you mentioned both of those, you felt like they were an important part of your path? I, I would say they're absolutely critical. The guy I went to did not have a license to practice psychology or anything anyway. He'd been, a, uh, I think, a Presbyterian, a minister, 
for a number of years, but he was very, very radical and basically the church kicked him out. And he became very depressed and so he got into therapy and he got into Gestalt therapy and then he, he learned that and he just started his own group. And, and he was a, a completely wild man and he was willing to let anybody that came to him totally risk the dissolution and complete disruption of their personality and their whole life to get to the, the truth of who they were. And, and I love that about him. And the, the first time I went to one of his groups, and, you know, we would sort of have to say where we were that day to become present. And so I did my little opening thing. And the first thing that he ever said to me is he said, there's nothing wrong with you that killing 100 people wouldn't cure. And I absolutely loved it because right from the get-go, he could see how angry I was. And I thought, my God, this guy is perceptive. Now, the other side, and this ties into you were saying intellectual versus experience. I was so against analysis or having anybody analyze me and label me that I specifically chose to go into gestalt work because it wasn't analytical, because it was experiential. And what I wanted was to get at the pain and all the repressed stuff that, that I was carrying. And so all the initial work I did, I didn't even want to come and even try and present something I wanted to work on because that was like a personal choice or an intellectual choice. So I thought, well, my dreams are coming out of my unconscious and I'm not consciously controlling those. So if I work on my dreams, I, I'm dealing with, with whatever is down there. So I would literally, when I dreamt, I would record my dreams and I would go over them just before I went to group. And I would literally work on my dreams. And, and the symbols carry all kinds of projections and repressed stuff. And it got very intense. And then, uh, so I was doing that. And during that time, I happened to cross the, the book, The Primal Screen. So I'm reading it over the weekend. And my God, the first third of the book, I'm like, my God, if this guy's right, I'm in big doo-doo because if just the normal average person is, is has a lot of repressed pain, you know, the child that I had, my God, I've probably got a ton. And the next third of the book, I was like, oh, my God. I think this might be true. And then by the end of the book, I was like, this is absolutely true. You know, I, I, I've got to get, I've got to feel this pain because there's no way around it. So I went to group that week and I, lay, I was laying on the floor in front of a couch and there was like a dozen other people there. And we're going around the room and he came to me and he said, Maury? And I just said, leave me alone. And then I started wailing and it, there, there weren't tears, but my stomach was rolling from the bottom of my stomach all the way up and out my mouth. And I was wailing and I was in front of this group and I wailed for 45 minutes, just a solid 45 minutes of just wailing with my gut rolling. And I recall the therapist in the middle of it, he said, he said, that's the pain the human race is afraid to feel. And um, 
the pain was that when I was a child, because I had to toe the line and all these uh, Christian fanatics had, had how you should think and how you should feel. So I was never left alone to feel my own feelings and think my own thoughts without somebody trying to stop it or repress it or tell me they were wrong. And that was a very, very deep, call it a primal pain. And because that was a safe group and any emotion was allowed, it just came out. And, and, and after that, anytime I smelled something or saw something that reminded me of something in my childhood that was painful, I would start getting this huge pressure at the back of my head and the top of my neck. And I knew I had to get home because something was coming up. And so I'd go home to my apartment and lay down and cry or scream or yell or whatever and just feel that pain. So, so that's the experiential side. But through all that, there was another side that wanted to understand. So that's, that's why I mentioned a lot about understanding. But actually, then the understanding becomes very simple, is that you are that. So that's, that's what stopped the search, is when that understanding was clear. I'm assuming that you had some sort of intuitive sense that the Gestalt therapy, I mean, something drove you to to look for that, or you read a book that resonated with you? Oh, yeah. It's, it's like I said, I, I, I did all the self-help stuff. And when I came across Fritz Perls and Gestalt therapy, I, I decided, you know, in my late 20s that I was messed up. Hmm. I mean, I was absolutely certain that, that there was something wrong with me and that I was messed up and that I needed to clean that up. And so I said, what kind of psychology do you want? I didn't want to be analyzed. Because analysis can go on for years, and like you were pointing out, it's very intellectual. And I was like, I'm not going to go to somebody to give me, you know, a label or several labels and, and try and analyze. It, it, so I read Fritz Perls, and I was like, okay, this is totally experiential. I was fascinated with it. And it wasn't analytical. So I said, okay, I can go to Gestalt group. So I, then I went and I looked for a Gestalt therapist. And I found this guy and he was, he was perfect for me. And, but even then I didn't want, I wanted to be absolutely certain that I was just dealing with my own unconscious stuff, not anything that I could analyze or figure out, but just what was really there. So that's why I went to Gestalt. I mean, I, I picked Gestalt because it wasn't analytic. How long did you do that? I don't know, for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I, I know, at least I have the feeling that uh, a lot of people hope or, or suspect or act as if if they just stick to the non-dual writings, if they just stick with reading Ramana Maharshi and meditating and Nisargadatta, that you don't really have to deal with that stuff. That's bullshit. I think, I think that's bullshit. 
Because if you if you study Advaita Vedanta, what's the whole purpose of meditation? It's to quiet the mind. Because they say, you're not going to get the realization that you are that if you don't have a quiet, subtle mind. Okay, so some people can do that through meditation. I was so full of pain that the only way I was going to get cleared up was to feel it. And the, 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 the work that a Gestalt therapist does is you come and you present your block. What's, or, 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 or their purpose is to see where you're blocked, where you're blocking yourself. And then they push on you. Because you can't do it yourself. They push on you to go through the block. And once that block is pushed over, all this crap comes out. And I was full of crap. All kinds of pain and all this. And that's exactly what interferes with having a quiet, subtle mind. If you're sitting on a whole bunch of pain and it's unconscious or repressed, what are you going to do? You're going to project. And if you're projecting, you're not seeing the truth. So I can tell you, I got an extremely quiet mind from that gestalt work. And then the primal stuff that followed. I mean, it just cleaned it out. And after that, my mind was really quiet. I mean, it just stopped. I mean, the racing mind and all that was gone. And I never needed to meditate to do that. And yet, then, once I had gone through all that, and all that was out of the way, well, then I could read Nisargadatta and go, oh my God, I understand what he's saying. I mean, I spent a year... Uh, in, in my mid-40s, I took five years off and just stayed home. I had uh, my, one of my kids was with me. And uh, I worked on this old house during uh, one day, and then the next day I would just uh, study Nisargadatta all day. And the next day I'd work on the house, and the next day I'd study Nisargadatta. And I stayed home for five years. That's, that's part of my being a hermit right there. I was in the middle of the inner city in a rundown house that that was the only thing I had to live in. So I was, you know, totally redoing it and just take my son to school every day and stay home and work on the house or study. So, no, I, I don't think that you need to uh, uh, just read non-dual books and do meditation. But that's, you know, that's the only way. I, I, I totally disagree with that. At what point in time, or how old were you as you, well, I, I don't know how to say it, but got to the the end of your search, or, or had a, or the switch flipped? Maybe that's the, the right words to use. Well, that to, that's really interesting, because when I look at myself, I see a real paradox. And the paradox was that, Okay, I was on this search, but for some reason I had this intuition. I could pick up a book and start reading it. I'd say, okay, this guy's got it. I'm going to read him. Or I'd pick up any other book and go, ah, this guy claims to have it, but he doesn't, right? So why in the hell am I still searching if some part of me already knows who's got it and who doesn't? Now, isn't that, that's a paradox. I mean, it just... Even now, it seems really strange to me that 
so what that sort of points to is like some part of me knew, but it's like another part didn't know that I knew. It, it's, it's, it's just very paradoxical. I can look at that and say, how arrogant that you're on this search, but somehow you pick up a book and you say, yeah, this guy's got it and this guy doesn't, so I need to study this one because he's got it. So, I mean, that supports the thing that, that we all are that, and deep down inside, somehow, we know it. But personally or intellectually, we don't. And so, that's sort of weird. So, uh, and when I look back at some of the stuff I wrote, you know, 20 years ago, it's like, yeah, it sure seems like you knew, you knew this then, but you just didn't know that you knew it. It's just, it's, it's very strange, but it was only, you know, much later that I came to, uh, Robert Wolf. It was, it was really reading his books that, that finally made my, intellectual side feel like okay I know and I know that I know you know it's sort of and it reminds me of Ramana Maharshi talked about I I he didn't say I he always said I I and it sort of reminds me of that that it's like some part of you knows but then another part of you needs to know that you know and, and it finally came to the point where, okay, I said, I know, and I know that I know. And that was like the final thing, is that I, not just that I know, but I know that I know. And I, it's hard to explain it any better than that, but it just sort of was like, and, and, and when I finally realized it and felt that, okay, this search is done, you know, not that I'm done or there's not further progress, but that the search, that, that, that driving search was over was at that point when, and it wasn't any big experience. It was just, oh, okay, it's over. I know that I know. And it was very quiet and I went to bed and I had a good night's sleep. And I think that the good point here is a lot of people are searching for some particular experience is that they're going to have. They don't know what it is, but they think when they have it, that that experience will be it, and it will be so strong that they'll 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 know it. They'll they'll be enlightened or whatever. And I don't think it always happens that way. Yeah, that's very interesting to me. I you and I are different, I think, in the respect that I felt myself to be very intellectual, but not very intuitive. So when I would have uh, a, a mystical type experience, uh, the next hour, my brain would be discounting it. Well, that's, you know, that could just be biochemicals, and there's no reason to believe that that is any more real than what you're feeling and seeing right now. So, uh, yeah, there was always that discounting in me. I never had that, ever. When I had those experiences, they were... Uh, 
they came with authority. They came with absolute authority. And it was like, when I wasn't in that space after that, I would try to even think about it or say, the felt feeling afterwards was, there's no way I could question this. It doesn't matter if I had, you know, 20 top-notch uh, quantum physicists and everybody or and biologists, PhDs, telling me I was nuts and that that, that was an invalid experience. It's like, they wouldn't hold a candle to the authority of the experience. So uh, everybody's different. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> And that's really, uh, that's one of the things that I've enjoyed a lot about this podcast is that opportunity to, to get to talk to a lot of different types of people and just hear about and share those experiences. I know you've mentioned uh, the therapeutic aspect, for example. Uh, looking back on your path, have you thought much about what are some uh, commonalities or bits of advice that you would share with people? That, that's a tough one. But first of all, I would say that the, the, the biggest obstacle, and, and I'm repeating something that Robert Wolf has said, uh, and it's that the biggest obstacle was it couldn't happen to me. I mean, literally, you know, you read these books, it's like, oh, okay, only one in a million could possibly realize that. You know, there's only a few. There's only five on the planet or whatever. And, and so basically, it just becomes a search that, that somehow unconsciously you think will never end because you'll never get it in this lifetime. And, and so I think the biggest obstacle is some sense of, oh, well, you know, little old me, I'm just a... A householder, or I'm just a carpenter, or I'm just a whatever. It, it can't happen to me. Or I don't have a PhD, and I didn't go to India, and I didn't go, you know, to satsang every week. So, you know, it interests me, but it couldn't happen to me. I think that's that's the one advice I would say is it, it can can happen to anybody, and it doesn't. It doesn't have to be some big experience that blows your mind and somehow that experience tells you that, that you've got it. Uh, it can come in much more subtler and quiet ways. But I don't think people have a choice as far as the, the, the intensity of the search, like for me, I described it as a curse because it didn't feel like I had any control over it. It was like inborn. So I, I think the intensity of people's search is a, is a, is a, determin, a determinant. And, and but how you go about it, whether you meditate or you don't meditate, or whether you're more intellectual or you're more a feeling devotional type, it's like you, you just follow the path that resonates with you. Just just follow the path that 
resonates with you. If it, if it fascinates you, if it excites you, if it feels like there's truth here, you know, just, just find whatever resonates the deepest with you and, and that's your path. And I don't think you have to follow any particular teacher because a lot of them have it and they express it in different ways. And some resonate with some and don't resonate with others. Yeah, I've definitely heard follow your fascination as a piece of advice. Yes. Yeah, if it fascinates you and it's just, and it fast, I would use words like, if it fascinates you, if it thrills you, if it totally intrigues you, then, then follow it. I, I think, though, there's a, there's a good distinction that you at least implied that there's a there's a depth to that fascination. For for example, I might be fascinated by uh, going to the horse races on Sunday mornings, <laughs> but that's not really the. There's a depth. That's not it. Yeah, there's a depth that we're talking about. That it may not. I think that that's. I don't know what you think about this, but I think that sometimes there's some work to be done in that respect of really digging in to discover what is our deep desire. And, and in my case, I'd say I, I didn't have to think about that. Yeah. And, and that's why I said I don't, think, I don't think someone can just decide, oh, enlightenment would be cool. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for that. If it's, if it's not intense, if it's not something, a drive that you can't even escape, I, I don't think the desire is strong enough there that, that it's going to bear any fruit. I mean, intensity is a, is a requirement, but again, I think I was intense, but I stayed very grounded and I appeared to live a normal life. And how does your how does your life manifest these days? Like how do you what are you keeping yourself busy with? Well, I spend a lot of time watching videos on Backgat. <laughs> yeah. And and they just absolutely entertain me. And it's like I'm not searching anymore, but because this is such a profound knowing it's just absolutely entertaining to me to watch how other people express it or how they came to this understanding and uh, like for fun, like how many people would say for fun, they read uh, the philosophy, uh, what, what Franklin Merrill's book, the philosophy of consciousness without an object. Uh, not many would read that for fun. <laughs> and, and so I just reread it recently because I'd read it in my 20s. And I just wanted to say, well, after all these years, how does that resonate with me now? Well, it just felt wonderful. So I'm retired and uh, I live way below my means. And, you know, I don't have any expensive hobbies. And so I just spend my time reading and gardening and taking care of the hummingbirds and you know, talking to my son when he calls, and and, yeah. and, I, and when I write my blog, it's like, 
it, it's mostly reactions. Like I'll be watching a video, like I'm back out or listening to a podcast on, on your site, and and I'll say, hmm, how do how how do I understand that? How would I write about that? Or I would say it this way. And so the the writing is just a reaction, and it's almost as if I don't write it. I mean, it just sort of comes to me, and I'll write it in like five minutes and edit it a little bit. But if I feel like I am writing it as a person, then I don't put it out there because it doesn't feel true. But if it just sort of comes to me or it feels like it was just sort of given to me, then it feels right and I'll put it, put it on the blog. Are you open to people contacting you if if people listen to this? And... Oh, yeah, yeah. If they listen to it, they want to contact me. I'd, I'd be glad to respond. Great. So, and that's the only way I would do it because, like I said, I don't have an agenda. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I just discovered this for myself, and 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 doesn't make life life perfect, but. It, it ends the search, and it gives you uh, a tremendous amount of peace. But I've never been one to say, oh, I'm, I've got this, and everybody needs to know what I know, and, and so here's my shingle, and, you know, this is what you all need to know. I'm, I'm more, if someone asks me something, I would respond. Or like you, you said, you know, you want to interview? So I'm like, okay, I've never done that before, but I'll do that. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's more, it's because I really feel like if I'm supposed to do something, it'll happen. But I don't have to do anything personally, really. I mean, it's not a feeling that I personally have to do something. It's just I respond. Do you feel like there's been any in the years since the, the switch flipped. Do you feel like there's been a an evolution to that experience or the embodiment of it? What what's been your experience of that? I, I think that's that's a start in a way. It's the end of the search that then starts the how do you live this or what difference does it make that you know this and and trying to live it. And and I don't think that's easy. Because, you know, we all have this conditioning and there's still a person here. It's like, I don't feel like that's who I am. But the person is here and it's an expression of that. And it's still got habits, things it likes more than others. Uh, So the realization to me is just the beginning and then to try it, and how do you relate to people, and how does that, uh, am I living up to what I know, or not? And half the time I don't. You know, this idea of enlightenment is some kind of a perfection where you can do no wrong, and you're walking around in bliss with your eyes looking all glazed over. It's, it's, it's not, I don't think that's helpful. I mean, they talk about, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, after that, chop wood, carry water. Or they say, well, it's perfectly ordinary. Well, in a way, that's just absolutely true. It's like you have this different perspective, and you have this background of peace or space, 
But on the surface, there's still all the crap to deal with. And, and, and just because you know it doesn't mean everything just slides into place and, you know. Now, I don't plan much and I have to be careful because I don't try to live in the moment, but I am so in the moment that I have to be really sure that whatever I'm doing, I finish that before I move on to the next thing. Because if I start anything and move on to the next thing, I'm so in the moment with the next thing that if I've left the pot on the stove, I'm going to burn the house. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just that way. It, it's I'm just whatever I'm doing is the only thing I'm doing. I'm never doing one thing and my mind is wandering and thinking about other things. It's like here. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a problem because planning or anything like that is just very difficult because nothing is important except the moment. I, if I go out and turn on the water to water the yard, I almost have to put it in my phone an alarm or something because if I start doing anything else, that's it. I'm there. Everything else is gone. It's really weird. But yeah, I still don't know... Uh... You know, I understand completely the idea of being driven and finding a, a resolution to that drive, but I, I still am up in the air in terms of what does that realization or enlightenment, experience of the absolute, what does that mean in terms of practical daily life in this world that we're in? Uh, you know, is the is the whole planet headed towards enlightenment? Are we in, uh, evolving into more and more spiritual beings? I don't have the slightest idea. Well, a lot of people seem to be saying that this you know, this understanding or the ease of getting this understanding is becoming a lot more prevalent. But I don't know. I mean, why do I read? Why did I read all those books? Because any the average person that I was around. There was almost nobody I could talk to about this. So the only place I could find what resonated with me was in books like Richard Rose and Miserbidat or Ramana Maharshi or David Hawkins or, you know, the Bhagavad Gita. So, uh, but, but now that there is the internet, this stuff is a lot more available. And when you started and I started, it wasn't. So it was a lot harder. I don't have any sense of, oh, I've realized something, and so now I'm going to go save the world. I mean, I really have the sense that, you know, God is in charge, or whatever you want to call that, is in charge, and, and everything is ultimately okay, whatever happens. But we are people, and we are on this planet, and, uh, you know, me personally, it's like I've, I've worn nothing but clothes from thrift stores for the last 30 years or more. Everything. I buy all my clothes at the thrift store. If I need something, I'll buy it at the thrift store first. Not because I can't afford it. You know, I drive a 20-year-old car, and I could go out tomorrow and buy a new car. But it's like it's better for the planet if I don't buy new clothes and a new car every three years. Uh, it's better for the planet if I live simply, and I don't really need much. 
I don't need entertainment. People cannot distinguish between what they need and what they want, especially Americans. Everybody thinks that whatever they want, they need. It's just it's insane. Yeah, I don't know what the world would look like if everyone had a profound spiritual realization. We might all accidentally burn down our houses because we are looking <laughs> at thoughts on the stoves. Yeah. But I don't think we have to worry about that anytime soon. No. So, I mean, so... I don't, is the, what we're doing to the earth a terrible? Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm totally convinced that, that consciousness changes one person at a time. And, and consciousness changes very slowly. So I'm not into great big pro projects. It's like something like your site, you know, where you do podcasts. Uh, with people that maybe can help other people realize something and, and, and get enough satisfactions from just being that they don't need all this stuff and all this entertainment, that that's very helpful and that's useful. But that's, for me, it's like we change one person at a time. Uh, I'm not sure big organizations they get bureaucratic and weighted down. So I, I think it's just important for everybody to live, to embody, as you say, if you realize this, that to just embody it as best you can and things will happen. So, but, you know, my experience with big organizations like, you know, the missionaries trying to save the Africans, you know, I, I, I just never bought it. You know, it seems really arrogant. So, but that's my personal conditioning. So I'm just not the type to like say, Hey everybody, let's put out a neon sign. You know, Maury knows something, you know, you all need to hear this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more quiet. So that's why writing seems very safe to me. So I put my blog out there, and, you know, not too many people find it, but people that do find it are people usually that I respect. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I want to talk to them. And uh, and like now, if you put this up there, if people think I have something that, that might help them, then I'm glad to talk to them. But I, I don't have any sense of, you need to know what I know. I mean, it's just, it's just all in God's hands, not anyone else's. Well, I, I will be sure to link to your blog. And then just by way of wrap-up, uh, a couple questions I often like to ask people. Are there any films that you are particularly attracted to in terms of you feel like express some spiritual truths? That's a hard one for me to answer. Uh, the, only, the one film that really has always struck me is Casablanca. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I don't know that most people would consider that a spiritual film, but for me, what it is, is that someone, you know, stood up alone against, you know, up the system, like the Nazis or whatever, you know, somebody mm -hmm. stood up and, and said, no, this isn't right. I, I'll tell you what. 
So speaking of film, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, uh, I'll brag a little bit. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, when I was writing a, a book a long time ago, I would put chapters up on a site that Francis Ford Coppola has. I don't know if it's still up. I think it is, but it was called Zotrope. Mm -hmm. And basically, Francis Ford Coppola was trying to um, uh, gather writers together and where he would get the first chance to see their short stories. Mm -hmm. And so he could mm -hmm. grab one if he thought he could make a film out of it and he liked it. And so I participated on that site. And at some point, uh, uh, he, he had thought that writers were all good people and they wouldn't uh, do any shenanigans, but people started misbehaving on the site. So at one point he came on and he told everybody, he said, okay, we're going to have to uh, uh, put an a oversight committee on this site. And if people are misbehaving, we'll run it by these people. And if they need to be kicked off or reprimanded, then this board will do it. And he said, uh, I'm going to let everybody select uh, uh, vote on who you want. But I'm gonna I'm gonna put one person on the board. And it was me. <laughs> and he said it was because I had a really cool head. <laughs> nice story. And and that happened yeah, and it happened to me earlier, like the I got to Nizar Gadada before he was well known at all. When his first book was just barely published, I was on CompuServe in the early days on some forum. Some teacher, uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Some teacher called or, or emailed me and said, you know, he said, you're ready for something a little more than this for him. He says, you need to look at this guy, Miserdata. And I literally had to order the book. You know, it wasn't Barnes & Noble, didn't even have it. I had to order it from India. And, uh, and so that's how I got into him years before, you know, uh, other people were talking about him and discovered him. And then uh, I wrote a review on one of Robert Wolf's books on Amazon, and he ended up calling me and thanking me, so I got to talk to him. Well, we're, uh, we're at the hour and a half mark, and uh, if there's any final thoughts that you would like to leave people with, you're more than welcome to. I, I would just say that if people want to have some good insight, they should should go check out the TAT Foundation online because you guys have some good stuff. <laughs> well, we appreciate the uh, appreciate the mention of that. Thank you. And uh, again, Maury, uh, thank you very much. The time flew by, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Good, I enjoyed it too. Thank you for listening to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. For more information about today's guest, as well as more interviews, books, and other resources, go to spiritualteachers.org. That's spiritualteachers.org.